program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Yay. Very good. So happy you are here with us today, Molly. Thank you for thinking of me. It's so fun. I've been looking forward to it all week. Uh, We will hit record in three, two, one. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. Like I say, every four years I'm up. I'm a military kid on the Air Force brand. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. Creativities imbued in every single thing I do. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie. That's really none of anybody's business. <laughs> hey, we're all steeped in the same tea. Welcome to the other side of campus. I'm Stephanie Seidel Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. And I'm Dixie Stamforth, Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. And we're excited that today Dr. Molly Hatcher is joining us. Molly Hatcher is the Director of the Faculty Innovation Center at the University of Texas at Austin. She leads a team in advancing an energetic culture of teaching and learning at the university by partnering with instructors, students, and staff to create engaging and inclusive learning experiences. Dr. Hatcher and her team provide pedagogical support, develop new services that advance the needs of the university community, and showcase teaching excellence on campus. Her recent co-edited book, Preparing for College and University Teaching, Competencies for Graduate and Professional Students was released this spring. Molly, welcome. We are so delighted you're here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Hey, this is going to be so fun. And so after that lovely introduction, let's just start with the big news. Tell us about your new book that was released this spring. So this has been a long labor of love project as many books are and it's one that I'm so proud of and so excited about and it really comes from my first days at what used to be the Center for Teaching and Learning at UT so it kind of has been on a parallel journey with me and my time in this world of educational development so I I started working on this book as a postdoctoral fellow And I was working with Joanna Gilmore, the co-editor, who was my supervisor then, who really headed up the graduate student development team in our teaching center, and just kind of came on to take notes at a meeting at a conference. And they, there was a chapter of the book that has to do with ethical decision-making for graduate students, and they hadn't quite found the right author for it yet. And I struck up a conversation with one of my colleagues who's an author in the book about having a legal background and kind of bringing that into classroom and thinking about policies and procedures and ethical decision-making. And she was like, I think you'd be a good author for this chapter. And it just kept growing and emerging into the co-editing position. And here we are, you know, I think about five-ish years later, it's finally come out. And the reason I'm so excited about it is because it's evidence-based and it's very practical. So it's really a chance to help a lot of others who care about graduate students and their pathways towards becoming teachers, teacher scholars, educators, build competency along the way so they can be really confident in those roles. That sounds amazing. And I cannot wait to dive into it a little bit more with you. So I want to read the title again, because I know we said it in the intro, but it's preparing for college and university teaching 
competencies for graduate and professional students. So I'm understanding then that each chapter is written by a different author and it's edited. And so you're able to really draw on the the key thought leaders in the field, it would seem. So I'm wondering, as you, as you think about this process, you're saying it's five years in the making. Even longer pre- preceding me, the group that came about to develop the book, which we called ourselves the Graduate Teaching Competencies Consortium, I think started developing about 10 years ago. So it has been a, a long engagement to really come up with something useful for practitioners in that field. And so what would you say, Molly, have, were the biggest challenges that maybe extended that time course? Tell us a little bit about that process. You know, I wasn't there for the early years of it, but from what I understand, that group came together because that field still is developing. And there have been a lot of challenges over the years around graduate student support and what that looks like and creating space for that in higher ed. You know, I think in kind of in the early days, a lot of graduate students, you know, several decades ago, graduate students felt like they were getting paid to do a job when they were invited in to be teaching assistants or instructors of record. And so that field has evolved to really thinking about what it means to teach and how that is helping build. It's not just uh, serving the purpose of filling a course and leading a discussion or whatever that role is, but really adding value to a graduate student's experience as they're building their career. And so a lot of that early days of thinking through this was like, how do we have a framework that really helps graduate students pinpoint what those things are so they can be really intentional about their path and seek out those different types of support so they can feel really efficacious. And when they're ready to go on the job market, they can articulate those, those beliefs and competencies. I love that idea of competencies. While you were talking, Molly, what I'm thinking to myself is when I often think about the constituencies at the university, it's faculty, students, and staff. And then you introduce me to graduate students. We've all been graduate students before, but they kind of squeeze in there somewhere between students and faculty. So what is particular about being a graduate student that this book tackles? Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to, hopefully won't be essentialist in this because there's such a nuance there for different experiences in graduate students. But You know, I had the benefit of coming into the teaching center in the grad student development team. You know, again, Center for Teaching and Learning at the time, now Faculty Innovation Center, which the name I did not come up with because faculty is a little exclusive and we do so much working with graduate students, which speaks to what you're asking or, you know, saying, Stephanie. But it's just a really, I, I feel lucky to have entered my work with a teaching center with that population in particular. Because there's so much overlap in the needs of all instructors. I mean, we're all on different parts of that journey, right? But there's something really specific about being a graduate student that all of us can call on. You're in that weird liminal space where you're both taking classes and teaching classes. You know, you're kind of oscillating back and forth to a position where you need to think about credibility and knowing in the classroom and guiding your students. And at the same time, you're in that power dynamic with supervisors and the institution and thinking about job market and all these possibilities. And so I think it's a really generative space and it's a really fun type of work to get to do because there's so much exuberance and experience and curiosity and excitement and just a want for support and multiple mentors to to kind of grow along the way. 
I love the intentionality piece of this because I think for many of us, our experience as graduate students was just kind of figure it out. You know, here you're a teacher now and you can figure out how to make it happen. So the intentionality of it seems really needed in our space. And it almost feels like it comes alongside the faculty who maybe are attempting to mentor these graduate students and gives them a tool that they could utilize to help in that process that you've just described. Do you have a just a teaser of a chapter that you could tell us about that you think would be really helpful that, that would just kind of whet our interest? So there, the framework is arranged in three sets. And I, I think you're right to see there could be lots of different audiences for this. But yes, we really wanted this to be a tool for grad students, for self-knowledge, for faculty that are mentoring grad students, for people like me who are working in educational development who might be doing trainings and support. But those last couple of chapters are really about pedagogical knowledge. So it's that really diving into principles for how we learn how we assess our own teaching effectiveness, how we assess our students. And so those, I, not maybe one chapter, but those chapters, those, those last chapters in the framework, I think those are areas that we don't always see, receive training in as instructors. They might not be intuitive to us. We've just seen it modeled. We haven't seen it articulated. So I think those chapters could be really useful, especially for faculty that are really invested in graduate student mentoring. Dixie's question reminded me of something you and I were chatting, thinking about how the Faculty Innovation Center and the Provost Teaching Fellows work together. And one of the phrases that you used in that conversation was the ethic of care. Tell me about that. It's funny because I I thought about that conversation after the fact and ethic of care was kind of an early learning term for me. When I started learning about feminist theory and Carol Gilligan's work, I mean, this is decades old work, but it kept coming and and it's not without its share criticism. So I just kind of say that there are limitations around being essentialist or reifying harmful gender norms. So I, I will say that, but it kept coming up for me this year. And I think when we have these moments where we feel scarcity or we feel uncertainty, um, where we're kind of put against a wall, things can get really clear. And so the clarity that we kept seeing in the Faculty Innovation Center from all the conversations we were having with graduate student instructors, with faculty members, with staff, is the importance of care and caregiving. And I think we've seen that as a culture. I mean, people who are kind of behind the scenes are now emerging as the people who've really led us through um, what we've all experienced. So yeah, just the importance of caregiving, human connectedness, attentiveness to needs, responsiveness to needs has kind of come out as a as a winner and as a place that we need to devote attention at a time where we've been bounced around and bumped around and trying to figure out what end is up this year. And isolated while that happened as well, which that connectedness really is essential if any care is going to be shared, I think. Could you maybe expand a little bit more about when you see this in action? What does it look like? What is it? It's a great question because, you know, I was even thinking being in the Provost Teaching Fellows Summer Lunch, I was really listening to Natalie um, Zinsky talking about the Compassion Project that she's doing. And it was, you know, I had all kinds of <laughs> lights going off and was feeling a lot of enthusiasm about that. And I could see, I could see in her work, she had talked about her 
One of her former faculty members who's a Purvis teaching fellow, Courtney Bird, she said, Courtney loved us and we loved her. Courtney was going to go to the mat for us and we were going to do that for her. And, you know, pointing out even really specific things like having flexible assignment deadlines for students or giving them some choice in how they will demonstrate their knowledge on an assignment is a really specific way you can see that in classroom practice. Um, For us in the Faculty Innovation Center, it's exactly what you're talking about, Dixie, is a time when we've been socially isolated. How could we forge connection? Is there something with our role that we could leverage where we could hopefully bring instructors together for um, camaraderie and for brainstorming together at a time when we were feeling pretty shaken up. You know, I'm thinking, Molly, of this past year that we've been through, and as Dixie said, isolation. Where did we get this part right last year, that connection? It's a good question. You know, one of the things that came out of these, uh, we did a series of surveys here and a lot of folks did that at different institutions. And we did it at the instructor level, both graduate students, faculty members, staff, students. And one of the highest rated challenges was was around well-being and mental health. And um, one of the things that I saw grow from that was an increased attention to how we can be really, again, intentional about student engagement, how we can surface the resources on campus so that people can get where they need to go, and how we can think about equity. If we're forced against the wall of this online learning space that some of us didn't choose, even though I think it has tremendous value, but may not have been our first choice or based on our familiarity, experience, et cetera, here we are in this grand social experiment, and all of us could see for ourselves that technology was creating access for our students and allowing them to participate in multimodal ways, which is really a good way to be attentive to students' needs and be flexible. I think there was something about seeing each other's homes, the students' homes. It pushed the humanity of our work to the forefront in a way it hadn't been before. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think where students felt abundantly challenged, and rightly so, I think they perhaps saw in ways they've never seen before that faculty also were dealing with those challenges when people have animals running and jumping in their laps or children screaming in the back. I mean, it's life. You know, I always say learning is messy. Learning should be messy. It's just messy. It's not this neat, clean process. And I think it's kind of cool what what happened with that. And yet it was also really challenging for everybody. Do you see the ethic of care continuing on into the the fall and beyond? And how do we keep this heightened awareness alive? We've been thinking a lot about, you know, we're going through our annual cycle where we kind of reflect on the year behind us. We start to think about the year ahead. And for us as a teaching center, what's really important, important for us is listening to the needs that are emerging. We can marry that with scholarship around teaching and hopefully have a good roster of supports in place for the next year. And this is a weird one. You know, I mean, it's just a strange one. There's not a whole lot predictable about it. But I think what we do keep hearing is we can't just go back to the way things were. And it's interesting. I was in a um, I was in a webinar the other day and I wish I caught the name of the person who made this comment in the chat. Um, But uh, they said, I'm curious about how much loss is about the loss of a fantasy that we realized 
never was real in the first place. So we were talking about the idea of kind of grieving all the different losses we'd felt from the previous year. And they said, that's why for some people, maybe it feels less like grief and more of an awakening. So I think that's what we've been trying to think about is what that awakening looks like and how we can't turn our back on care. We can't turn our back on equity. We've seen how to do it. How do we bring that into our courses? And and as a teaching center, our support for instructors this year, we're tired. We're kind of tired of being told what to do. We're tired of new things. But what are those couple of things we can retain where we're not feeling we have to reinvent the wheel? But if everybody can pick and choose a few, the students are going to feel that. Let's hope that we can can do that going forward and that we don't just, you know, put our heads down and plow forward without taking some of those lessons. I love that term awakening. Really powerful. I like that a lot. How would you say that the faculty that you interact with are doing? So what has this year done for them from a teaching perspective, from an interactive perspective? What are your thoughts on that? One is just attending, which again goes back to ethic of care. Attention is one of the the key components of that. So having a broader awareness and attention to maybe not just what they perceive as the needs of students, but really asking and listening to those needs. I think a lot of times we can tend to um, project what our students need based on our own. (laughs) I always think of the example of like having a student in my first semester of teaching who I was giving a midterm report for who was getting a C in the course and they weren't bothered by it. And I was like, you're okay with this? I mean, you know, here I am privileged, like, you know, entitled overachiever who just would not even be cool with a B plus. And this person was like, that's great. That's an expectation I have for this class. So, you know, it was the first time I was really challenged to think like, All the learners in my classroom are coming in with different sets of backgrounds, intersecting social identities, needs and experiences. So that's, I'm hearing probably more of that than anything is just how do I take stock? How do I provide opportunities for input? How do I bring humanity into the classroom? Just as you're saying, Stephanie, by not feeling like everything needs to be poised and seamless. Um, but that we can be humans together in that space. Another one that I wanted to bring up, and this came up, um, this has come up a few times, is a kind of a false binary between care and rigor. Um, and that's, I don't know that I have an answer for that, but I've heard a lot of people asking, how can we be rigorous and be really student-centered and caring and compassionate at the same time? And they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that's a hurdle we need to get over in order to do that kind of work. Maybe another way to frame that would be this voice in the back of my head that I've heard in different places, but this sense that we'll be evaluated as faculty on the grade distribution in our class. And if we're flexible, all the grades are going to get too high or faculty that might feel, you know what, I don't have a training in emotional well-being and in mental health. How do I step into that space if I'm not well-trained? I hear that so often. I think it you know, in the trauma-informed pedagogy context too, right? There's that sense of, I wasn't trained to do this. Is this a responsibility I have with my students? And I think it's so important to carve out what we're asking for in that kind of pedagogical practice, right? And that boundaries and self-care are critical to providing care for our students. I think that's one of the critiques of ethic of care is that it's about self-sacrifice, but it's not. 
you're modeling your own care in the way that you're also extending care to students. And I think another thing that I think about in that context, Stephanie, is sometimes when we talk about these shifts in pedagogical practice, any of us who are invested feel a pressure to transform everything all at once. And that's why I keep thinking about, okay, we've had the awakening. What what are the couple of short-term things? You know, in the universal design for learning context, we talk about plus ones. What's the plus one? Maybe I can just include captions on my videos this semester. And that is a way to open up the door for more people to gain from that instead of feeling like I've got to sit down with my syllabus and do everything all right now. <laughs> Yay. I hear teachers cheering all over the universe <laughs> at, that, at that mention of, you know, in my world, they, you know, we just say, you know, small change is exponential and change one small thing. Just one small thing will make a huge difference over time. So if you could think of what maybe a few of those one small things would be, what would be on your list, Molly? You know, the one that pops up in my mind, and I mentioned earlier things like um, flexible deadlines, or if you're having assessments, different ways of demonstrating for students to demonstrate their knowledge so that you can allow for options and students to have some ownership of that learning process. There's another one, and it's very present in my mind because in our center, we were working on it this morning for ourselves, which is establishing community guidelines. And that's a practice you can do from the very outset. There are lots of models all over the internet. We can also, uh, for folks who are at UT or even beyond, support some of that practice in our center. But establishing community guidelines collectively as a class to decide how you want to interact with each other and how you want to be accountable to each other and express care for each other throughout the semester is just such a good way to set a tone with students to let them know I'm holding space for you as an instructor and I'm committed and I I want to know you and I want to learn about you, but it's something you don't have to establish with every student, right? You're not taking the time to do it with every student, but you're just saying in the first week of class, we're going to spend a little bit of time together to craft out some guidelines about how we're going to, how we're going to behave with each other over the semester. I love that. It gives me great hope that you all are doing that together as a community. Could you maybe share one or two that that your group agreed on, I think, just to get people thinking about what might be possible? I'd be happy to. And we're still in the process of negotiating these, so I don't know that it's final. But one thing that we talk a lot about is communication. And that typically comes up um, in classroom community guidelines, because communicating with care and what that looks like and carving that out can really empower people to take advantage of those practices. It's also something that we're not all, again, trained to do. You know, we didn't all, you know, if we aren't in communication fields, we might have not really learned how to do this. So having self-awareness and conversation, using active listening strategies, mindfulness, being able to think about challenging ideas, but not individuals who are bringing forth those ideas. So even thinking through the area of communication would be a way to surface in the class this this concern students have that they can kind of bring out. And once they have a collective understanding about how they're going to proceed, they'll start to establish trust with each other. And of course, it will depend on the class size. It's a little more challenging in a larger class setting. But there you could focus on some different guidelines that might be more appropriate for that context. This makes me think of two things. One, a student just told me that she absolutely loved that last semester, one faculty came into the Zoom meeting and just said, I don't have it today. I just can't do it. And canceled class. And of course, in my brain, I'm thinking, 
oh my goodness, canceling class. Oh my gosh. She said it just opened up that sense of, of humanity. And so I'm thinking you said modeling my own care. Sometimes the class time, the 50 minutes, the 90 minutes, it has a rhythm to it. We've been sort of trained to focus on this particular learning context as if it's only about information. Yes. And now I'm trying to think back on my work. Where does the modeling my own care come in? What does that look like? The first thing that strikes me when you were talking about this other professor kind of showing up and canceling class was thinking about even on a a first day of class setting, are there ways that you can share components of yourself outside of the class that relate to the class that can show those, those human perspectives, just show that you're a human, just like, you know, bringing in a piece of research, showing how a, a building block that you're learning in the class is, could help people get to this stage, something exciting that you're working on. I think even when you're coming in on a typical day to deliver a lecture or to do a quiz, to be able to share something personal that feels comfortable for you, that relates to the classroom experience so that you're bringing your whole self into the space, you're being wholehearted in that space, not feeling that you need to, we've been talking a lot about integrity in the FIC, having an integrated sense of self. And how do you have a teaching persona that's integrated with self and doesn't feel like a performance that's outside of your own set of values and characteristics? So where are those places where you could bring in those values into the classroom that still feel like you're not divulging too much or being unprofessional. I love how you're describing that, Molly, and it's really opening up opportunities in my own mind to think about it. And I wonder if it's also true at the same time that some bodies can do that differently than others. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, when I'm talking, whenever I'm talking about integrity, I'm always thinking of Parker Palmer's work. And Palmer talks about integrity a lot and just the heart of teaching and I think I'm probably not going to get it quite right, but in, in one of the chapters, he writes about how learning to become an instructor, looking at your instructors and what those models look like and how you're as an early teacher, you tend to mimic those. And sometimes they just, they, they you know, there's not integrity there because it it's different. It doesn't align with your own values. And that's, I think, again, goes back to why I love working with graduate student instructors or early career teachers who are sorting that out and just saying, like, if this doesn't work for you, like humor in the classroom, that's not comfortable for everybody. So maybe you don't pick that one up. You kind of have to figure out how to bring yourself into that space. Yeah, I think that that requires maturity, certainly. Yeah, (laughs) experience. You're not worried just about coming in with like your pants unzipped or like spilling water. It's like, what's going to happen today? I just need to get through this. And so I wonder also if we aren't talking about, you know, learning to be comfortable, you know, with who you are and letting that person grow and evolve and change over time and not having all the answers, where I think sometimes there's the expectation that the teachers have it all together and they have all the answers. And I, you know, I think, Stephanie, even back to your question, that ability sometimes we show self-care perhaps by being willing to say that is, I mean, I I say it regularly, so I'll just say how I say it. That is the greatest question I think I've ever heard. I've never thought about it that way. I have absolutely no idea. 
Let's either unpack it or let's think about it and let's, or we'll do some investigation and come back and talk about it next time. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if just being willing to be yourself is one of the ways that we're able to do that. I mean, you raise such a good point. We're kind of in this place, like the modern condition of higher education right now is really driven by standards of productivity that can, again, feel contradictory contradicting of, you know, wholeheartedness or bringing in self, acknowledging limitations in our own knowledge and experience. And that again, feels like another false binary to me. We can be knowledgeable and experienced and excellent, excellent guides for our students and still not have all the answers in our field. That it's about critical thinking. It's not about knowing everything. So another thing, the reason why I think of care, I think comes up for me so much this year is I'm also parenting a four-year-old through the pandemic. And so there's just this spectrum of learning happening in all my spaces. And it's really, it's important for me. Um, I remember early on someone saying, it's not important for you to show your daughter that you're always getting it right. It's showing her how you're learning and growing through the experience. So being really process oriented and, and having joy in that process is, is a great part of learning. Yeah. And, you know, I think your example is is the perfect one because that is learning and you're seeing it every day with your four-year-old, right? Talk about learning being messy. It it just is. And it, and it really should be. And it seems also that it, that opens the door because as much as she's your daughter, you're, you're separate beings. And so, so you are helping her, you know, become that being that, that she is. And so where maybe there's an introverted or an extroverted, you know, in my, my life, it would be my husband and I, and we teach together and we are totally different. And I have yep. found that being able to speak to students about who they are as well opens that door for, for care to happen. That when you see an introverted student to recommend the book Quiet, I don't know if you all have read that, but it's a fabulous book. For anyone who is introverted or works with introverts, um, I am not one. And I read it and it opened my eyes to how to interact with, with students who just their ethic of care looks different than my ethic of care. And what I love about this conversation is what I'm seeing and hearing from you, Molly, is that it looks different for different people in different spaces and different communities. Would that be an accurate assessment? 100%. And it goes back to the importance of the self-reflection piece. And exactly as you said, Dixie, that time invested in knowing self and having self-knowledge and self-care practices will directly translate to the learners. Because, and, it, and it gets us out of that space, again, of assuming that we know what their needs are. We have to ask when we show that investment, it's a, it, it creates such a big difference in the learning experience. Because again, you're holding space for them. And I think too, thinking about ways you can acknowledge power differentials in the classroom and being able to see that all students might not see themselves in the classroom in great majority at the university or you know the relationships they have with their instructors critical part of care in, in the classroom and that conversation. 
Molly, what you're sharing is giving me new ideas for how I want to engage with the graduate students in my life. And while I might often talk with them about how to grade writing assignments and good practices around the sections of the class that they're running, I'm wondering if I can create space to invite them to raise their own self-awareness. Have you seen good practices among faculty as they work with their graduate students? Around self-awareness, particularly? You know, it's interesting because... We're, we have the opportunity to teach a, excuse me, we have an opportunity to mentor a group of advanced graduate students to teach a graduate level pedagogy course. So we had the chance to try some of those things in those classroom settings over the fall semester. And what I'm seeing is probably maybe not specific exercises or frameworks or activities, um, but more, again, mindfulness practice more so than anything holding mindful moments in class, acknowledging that when we come together, we might need space to activate our minds around what we're going to be doing there for the day so we can be more present together, having meta-conversations about the content. So there's that sort of metacognitive level that's being addressed. That's where I would see it happen in those spaces. I don't know what if something comes to mind or if there's anything you're trying, Stephanie. That idea, it's connecting with what Dixie was saying too, sort of illuminating the thought behind the decisions. Yes. And maybe if something didn't work well in class, right? Like, yes. oh, this is how I saw that exercise or that conversation going. And boy, yeah. it got off the rails fast. And just continuing, as you said, we're all instructors in training. Some of us have yeah. more years of experience than others. Graduate students are adding years of experience, maybe helping sort of to illuminate this was my aim with that decision or this is why I set this up this way. What else could I try? I just I think those open ended questions that you just described, Stephanie, are so essential. I cannot tell you how many graduate students have have indicated to me, I get to say anything. I get to have an, you know, they're just shocked that that they have a voice. And by being willing to have that conversation that you just described opens the door for this whole new level of insight and perspective that we just simply don't have as the faculty member. No, I'm so glad you said that. And it's just feeding, it's just feeding my mind in more ways. Because I, I, was, I was hearing what you said about that And I thought about one of the activities we do in that class leading to drafting a teaching statement. And that's a a critical service that we offer as support around teaching statement development, which if if folks don't know, that's an artifact that a lot of graduate students are asked to create on the academic job market. But we see research around teaching statements that um, taking the time to reflect and be intentional in your teaching will improve your practice. So we are really invested in that statement. But a stepping stone towards that is taking a lesson plan and annotating it and being able to carve out the intention along the way, because that can help start um, to think about, you know, how am I being intentional in my teaching, which, again, as an early instructor, you might be mimicking or reacting or really, really teacher centered because you haven't been able to have the experience and familiarity yet to kind of go to that level. But one other quick thing it's reminding me of is I've had the joy of working on the University of Texas at Austin has a graduate student mentoring committee right now, which is made up of tons of faculty and staff across our university helping us try to think about how to um, have stronger mentoring practices at the universities, especially for the graduate student community. And one of the things we've seen come out through surveys and conversations with graduate students is that need for multiple mentorship model, being able to get mentorship from a lot of different spaces. And as an instructor, 
if we can open up those opportunities, as Dixie said, to really like get down to the logistics about how you're making choices, being like really actionable steps, not just kind of talking in the abstract and showing an investment and that kind of mentoring can open up so much. Well, Molly, we have so enjoyed our conversation with you today. You've really opened up our thought processes, everything from we need your book (laughs) in order to get this conceptual model laid out. And certainly we kind of started there because it's your book tends to target graduate students to a large extent. And that's kind of where we finished back up. You know, everything in between in terms of the ethic of care and what this year has taught us and lessons going forward. We are so grateful that you've taken time to share your experiences over this past year and and years before with us today. Thanks, Molly. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Well done, friends. We did it. Awesome. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you.